Thank you for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. For those who haven't yet heard, we've finally made our move into our new home in central Missoula. We'd love to see you Sunday mornings at 2010 Third Avenue West and hope you're blessed by this online resource. Uh, Lord Jesus, we appreciate these breaks. In Genesis, you created morning and evening, day and night, and you created a seven-day week. And in that rhythm... That reliance that we see in the New Testament of setting apart time on the Lord's Day is something keenly important. That weekly what we need is exposed in what we receive as the gathered body of Jesus. Where coming we are reminded of all that we are not and all that Jesus is so that we might continue his mission of going forth and making disciples of all the nations. And so Jesus, we pray to that end that what happens today is we encounter the beauty of who we are and the splendor of what you've come to save us from in our sins, in your perfect life, your substitutionary death, and your victorious resurrection. We pray all this in your name. Amen. In 2009, or 2019, excuse me, one British talk show interviewed a man who identified as a piece of broccoli. In order to push his plant-based agenda and seemingly in jest and much to the chagrin of the man trying to interview him, at every juncture of the conversation, he simply attested that his true identity was merely a piece of broccoli and his job was simply to grow and to be a plant. Just this past week, it was reported, joking aside, that a teenage girl in Melbourne, Australia is identifying as a cat, so much so that her school is allowing her to live out that identity as long as it doesn't affect the class. And these two stories are microcosms of a culture that we're living in today, a world where legitimate issues of mental health and outrageous claims about existence promote humor, though darkly, anxiety, worry, depression, and confusion. It's hard, if you've noticed, for anyone to speak clearly on these issues Because to speak to these issues requires an answer to a question that no one is seemingly able to answer right now. And that question is, what does it mean to be a human? This is something that requires more than mere observational skills. It actually requires an answer. It pulls from a worldview. It answers the perspective not merely of what is, but why it is and what it ought to be. Is there something essential to being human? Are humans distinct from anything else? Are we distinct among ourselves? And there's constant chatter all around us on our pockets, vibrating in our phones, on our podcasts, and on our televisions. But the significance to this question isn't exclusively seen in whether you wake up and use the litter box or whether you have been spending your days processing light as energy in the process of photosynthesis. We, all of us collectively, from the youngest kid in here to the oldest individual in here, are working daily thousands of decisions, micro decisions, based off your idea of what it means to be human is. We're taking a break from our study through the book of Luke for the next four weeks to prepare us to talk back to our world, but primarily to talk back to ourselves. In the midst of this never-ending, sometimes crushing monologue of life, which challenges our identity and our experiences at every step. And over the next few weeks, we're going to discuss how we can interrupt our 
our inner monologue with thoughts on the gospel. We can begin to speak to ourselves when we're anxious, when we're depressed, when we're angry, when we feel limited. But the truth is, and this is where you guys have a leg up, being here today over all the rest who will come back next Sunday, you have a leg up because if we want to understand any of our experiences in terms of anxiety, depression, or anger, we need to first answer the question of what it means to be human. That is the tuning fork and the true north star of the compass of our life. Science is helpful to answer that question to a bit because science allows us to see the essential components of what is. It is science that is able under a microscope to look at a bit of your flesh and say it looks different than the bark of a tree. But science, any good scientist will tell you this, is naturally limited. It could tell you what is, but it cannot tell you why you are or more importantly, who you are. That is, science can break down essential elements, but science cannot tell you who you are in essence. It cannot tell you your purpose, your intent, your design, or your actual being. For this, we need something more. And this is where science and what we observed is complemented by philosophy, and that is how we think. And for the Christian to engage in observing our physical world through a framework of philosophy doesn't start with you, some great ideas, and a blank piece of paper. It starts with a God who exists apart from us, who speaks into our existence, telling us who we are as he increasingly reveals who he is. In other words, we cannot understand the trials of this life without understanding what it means to be human. And we cannot understand what it means to be human apart from understanding the God who made us. And that's what we're going to examine today is this unique intersection of seeing who we are in light of seeing who God is and how that shapes our experience as humans. This is what we're going to see today. We're going to see the fullest experience of humanity is living in dependence upon an unlimited God. The fullest experience of humanity is living in dependence on an unlimited God. And we're looking at two passages today. We're going to look at Hebrews 2, which Jonathan just read for us, but we're also going to look at Psalm 8 this morning, and we're going to unpack this. First, in Psalm 8, we're going to see our first two points this morning. That is, we're going to see that humanity is distinct among creation, and that humanity is dependent upon the Creator. And then in Hebrews 2, the author of Hebrews actually preaches on Psalm 8. So pay attention to his sermon. It's going to be better than mine, but I'm going to try to do it justice. And he takes Psalm 8 and applies it to Jesus, where we see our third point this morning, and that is that humanity is redeemed in the Christ. So that's our our way forward today. And we're going to begin by reading the whole of Psalm 8. So if you have your Bible, you open up in the middle. Psalm is probably the big passage you'll open to, and the eighth chapter is nine verses long, and this is what we're going to read first. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You have given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen 
and also the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes along the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So here we see a poem which begins and ends with God's majestic, radiant glory ringing through the whole earth. But in the middle of it is the significance of humanity. If you've been around the church, if you're familiar with scripture, you will notice that Psalm 8 is merely a cover band of Genesis chapter 1. It is an echo of the creation account that we see of how God made the whole world. In Genesis 1, over the course of six days, God created the world. He created light and darkness. He separated the day. And he or separated the light and called it day and the darkness and called it night. He made land and water, birds of the air, beasts of the field. But then as this centerpiece, this crowning moment of his creation, God created man in his own image. Moses tells us male and female, he created them. So distinct from everything else is this created act of humanity, which was made in the image of God. We can learn a lot about God by studying the heavens, by looking at the strength of lions. University is underway at the University of Montana, and behind every discipline are discoveries which should cause us to glorify the creator God. But because man is made in the image of God, it was in humanity that the majesty of God is reflected most fully. That was the original design. That is why he made us in his image distinct from everything else. That is why if you read Genesis 1, at the end of every created day, it was good, it was good, it was good, but after God created humanity, it was very good. Because it was humanity that was made exclusively in the image of God, we must comprehend that we can only know so much about ourselves without understanding the one in whose image we are made. I'll say that again. Our understanding of ourselves is limited by the understanding of the one in whose image we are made. That's what we're gonna talk about mostly in point two. But here in Psalm 8, David says we can still learn something about the essence of our humanity by comparing ourselves to the rest of the created world. And this is our first point this morning, is that humanity is distinct among creation. We must understand our relationship to God, but here we can also understand our relationship in terms of creation. If you're not sure what your belief on God is yet, and you're wondering, and perhaps you're seeking out that, we're glad you're here today. And here is where a helpful starting point might be, is to consider yourself in relationship to what is, what you can observe, and maybe that will lead you to some new discoveries. Humanity, as we see in Psalm 8, is part of creation, but it is distinct among it. We could see that where humanity is made lower than the created angels. But humanity is also made to rule over distinct aspects of creation. Humanity, man, is not a bird, nor is it an angel. It is not a fish, but neither is it a star. Humanity finds its place between what it is not. Humanity is not the Lord whose majesty reigns over all the earth, but neither is humanity a mere fish swimming in the sea. 
Humanity is not the angels existing in their raw spirituality, but neither is it a beast of the field. Humanity is not the cosmos in the heaven, but neither is it as ordinary as a sheep or an oxen. Blaise Pascal, the brilliant mathematician and faithful Christian, said this once. He said, humanity exists halfway between what is, or between immensity and that which is infinitely small. Humanity exists halfway between immensity and that which is infinitely small. In other words, beyond ourself is vastness in both directions. You look up and what do you see? Galaxies upon galaxies, stars, planets, black holes that we cannot understand and some we cannot even see. There are moons the size of our earth. There are stars 10 times brighter than the sun that, are, that is currently burning our forest. There is seemingly endless vastness, hugeness, this transcendent immensity in the cosmos. But at the same time, look down. Beneath us are galaxies of cells, of molecules, mitochondria, atoms, quarks, beyond our field of vision and understanding, protons and neutrons constantly at work in a perfect orbit that we can't seem to replicate. In a world of seeming infinity, here sits finite humanity. I begin at zero foot zero, and I end at six foot two. I know my limits, but this world is vast in both directions. You see, we can get on Netflix and we could watch documentaries about lions, about the stars, about ants, and about sloths. But there is no documentary about Kyle, the CPA. (laughs) It is woefully ordinary. And David picks up this tension He says, when I consider the heavens, the moon and the stars, which you set in place, those things sparkle with innate glory. Those are the things we make documentaries about. Those are the things that invoke a sense of transcendence among us. But did you see what David said? He said, it is man whom you have crowned with glory and honor. In the face of a world full of majesty, God has placed uniquely a burden upon his humanity. And this is important for our day because in a sense we're returning, though in wrong ways, to a right understanding of this. We live in an era where sociologists and philosophers are calling it the era of expressive individualism. That is, if you want to be who you really want to be, if you want to understand your life and live it to the fullest, you must love yourself and give yourself everything. Repress not yourself. Satisfy yourself endlessly. Disney was on this far before any philosophers were. If you want joy, be true to yourself. If you are limited, it's because you're not being true to yourself. But when we look at Psalm 8 even, and the way in which we are distinct we see two problems with this. The first is the problem of idolatry. 
Because God is the creator, creation itself can never satisfy. That's idolatry. Turning to something created instead of the unlimited creator. To think you can satisfy yourself, to think another created object, even as glorious as the moon or the stars, can make sense of or satisfy you, is to commit idolatry. James points this out, in that everything good we encounter in this earth is really genuinely good. It is good to stand in awe of the heavens. It is good to taste delicious barbecued meats, but each of those good created things is meant to drive us to the ultimate creator. Consider James chapter one, verses 16 through 17. Do not be deceived, my brothers. Every good and perfect gift is from above. You mean from the cosmos? You mean from the universe? No, coming down from the father of lights in whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so James solves problem one, the problem of idolatry, by showing us the God who is above all of that, by showing us the uncreated creator. But then he brings about this second problem, the problem of our experience. And what is our experience? You will be deceived you will live in a world where it seems all that glitters really is gold. That what dominates our life is what we see, what we can touch, and what we can have. But there's the problem with that. What's the problem? They always change. They are created, which means we could divide them into parts and we could find they are mere commodities. They will be limited They will be diminished. They will not be the same. Why? Because they are created just like you and I. But beyond that is God alone, the unlimited sole provider of satisfaction and salvation. The problem of experience then is that the more we try to satisfy the longing of our humanity in limited created things, the more depressed, the more anxious, and the more alone we feel. This is the dilemma that explains all of our woes of trying to find the fullness of our humanity in things that are just like us. This is the summary of the human problem. And it's not new. This isn't a 21st century issue. In fact, writing in the ripe fourth century, in the 300s, a pastor by the name of Augustine said this, He said, for however far a man may fall away from the truth, he still continues to love himself and love his own body. He goes on to say that no one's able to hate himself or hate his body. In fact, that's the exact opposite of our world says today. If you feel bummed out, if you feel depressed, if you feel anxious, if you feel angry, turn back inward because you're obviously not loving yourself enough. But this, in a pre-Instagram world, look at what he says. He says, when some people say they would rather be without a body altogether, that is, they hate their body, they feel they're not loving themselves enough, what does he say? He says, they entirely deceive themselves. For it is not the body, but its corruptions and its heaviness that they hate. This is a profound glimpse into our own souls. How many of us think to ourselves because we are spoken to on a daily level that our problem is we do not love ourselves enough. But Augustine echoes Paul writing scripture who says, no man ever hated his own body. 
what we hate, what we're upset with, what makes us angry, depressed, and anxious is where our bodily existence, our weakness, and our limits don't match up to the vision of humanity that each and every one of us have. That is who you think you ought to be. Each and every one of us lives in light of who you think you ought to be as human. Some of us are frustrated because we don't have the kind of existence we would expect to have. But that begs the question again, what's the essence of humanity? What is the experience you should have as a human? Each of us innately know something is corrupted. That's because each of us feel the effects of sin. Sin has corrupted us. Sin has corrupted our world. But we always misidentify what is actually corrupted. Without the help of the gospel, we always assume this. We always assume that our limits are our corruption. Therefore, if we want flourishing, we must fix our limits. We must become independent. We must reach for that which is beyond us. And so what do we do? Think of the hopes of our world today. Think of the hopes of your own heart. We strive for unlimited power for unlimited control, for unlimited wealth, for unlimited sex, for unlimited security, for unlimited energy, and for unlimited wisdom. But what if our understanding of humanity itself, what if our presupposition of who we ought to be is fundamentally flawed? What if the greatest act of human flourishing, what we were truly made for, the essence of what it means to be created in God's image was not to find yourself unlimited, but instead to find yourself desperately dependent upon the God who alone is unlimited. How much of us encounter the frustrations of life in this world and we think that we are frustrated at our humanity where the truth is you are actually frustrated because you are not God. I was listening to a professional weightlifter talk the other day. He was speaking of powerlifting. And he said, there's this progression that these men are making of lifting heavier weights and heavier weights. And he said, he stopped that. Why? He says, because inevitably everyone is chasing an injury. Someone might beat that record But that person who broke that record will try and break his own record and he'll just get hurt. There are limitations everywhere. The humanity, the the idea that humanity is chasing an injury is the most pervasive truth of human history. In fact, chasing an injury, pushing our limits beyond what is natural was the origin of the first sin. Do you remember Genesis chapter three, verses one through seven? Consider this. So here's Adam and Eve in the perfect garden and and it opens saying, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like him knowing good and evil. 
So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, do you hear her internal dialogue? Do you hear her talking to herself here? And there was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took the fruit and ate and also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So did you notice the devil's logic here? God's holding out on you. Yeah, it's great. You get to walk in a garden with God, but what if you could be God? He doesn't want you to have that. He's made you limited and you should reach beyond that. Being in God's image is not nearly as good as being God himself. And so they took and they ate. And in that moment, everything changed. You see, we were made with creational limitations. Look at the garden. Before there was sin, we ate, we drank, we slept, which means we had need for food, we had need for water, we had need for rest. And all of these limitations were meant to lead to the act of glorifying God who perfectly met our needs and our limits in his infinite existence, endlessly, that daily we would turn to the God who had no end and find he is sufficient to give what we always needed. Those are our creational limitations. But when sin happened, we introduced new limitations. A new situation came about. We had situational limits of sin and death. Now we're not only limited by the nature of our created uh, humanity, but we're limited by two new situational realities. First, we are limited morally by our own sin. Our hearts are fallen. Our hearts are wicked. Our hearts speak lies to ourselves, just as the devil spoke to Eve. We are far from God. But there's a second situational limitation. And that is that even though we are broken and we alone have a moral problem, we live in a limited broken world. Humanity, or creation is not moral. God's not going to sit up and judge the deer that ate that flower that the wife really didn't want the deer to eat. But we live in a broken world where deer eat the flowers that the wife didn't want them to eat. We live in a broken world where death and sickness and tragedy and disaster Rain, it wears at our body like water constantly wears against a rock. And the way back is not to make the same mistake again. The way out of this situational reality is not like Eve to stretch beyond what we were created for, trying to reach a level of unlimited existence, but instead to return to joyful dependence upon the God who lives to satisfy us in his infinite majesty. But sin soiled everything. By nature, we do not view God as trustworthy. We do not view our limits as good. In Genesis chapter 11, a few pages later, we see this problem rearing its head again. Genesis 11 verses one through four. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. 
And they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower and make its top in the heavens and let us make a name for ourselves. Do you hear this? Lest we be dispersed across the face of the earth. What is their problem? Their fear. What is their solution? Get bigger. Become unlimited. Reach to the heavens. Make a name for yourself. At Babel, the war for unlimited power waged on. Hope misplaced led us to, to reach beyond what God had made to find, make a name for ourselves. Genesis 11 is the inverse of Psalm 8. It was not the Lord's majesty, which was the solution to man's finitude, but instead it was trying to make infinite that which God had made fickle, finite, and what sin had made fallen and a failure. You see, if we don't understand the way in which God created us as humans, we will always be frustrated with two things. First, we will always be frustrated with our limitations. We will wrestle, we will be upset, we will be anxious and angry when our basic limitations like food and sleep and water begin to annoy us. We will be frustrated. You see, the Bible presents that each new morning for the believer, God's mercies stand new. But unless we see that each new morning doesn't bring mercy, but it brings menaces. Why? Because apart from a God who is unlimited in himself, every new day provides a threat to what you earned yesterday. Ah, but if God is the source of our unlimited dependence, then every new morning is a day where we get to turn and see how God provides out of his abundance for our earthly existence. We'll become frustrated with our limitations, or second, it will lead us to be frustrated with the God who made me. Like the potter who in Romans 9 says, why did you make me this way? We will refuse to see God as good because we by nature view limitation as something wrong and opposed to our flourishing. You see, we need to overcome our situational problems. And the only way that will be overcome is by seeing God's faithfulness and seeing God's goodness in the midst of true human experience. And this is where we see our last point this morning, where humanity is redeemed in the Christ. Where Adam rebelled against dependent humanity, the new Adam, Jesus Christ, would humbly submit himself to human limitations in a perfect way. Where Eve sinfully reached up to become like God, Jesus flipped the script. Jesus himself reached down to become like us. And in so doing, we see the hope of humanity restored. In Hebrews 2, as I said earlier, maybe you'll hear this more now than when Jonathan first read it. He's preaching on Psalm 8, and notice what he says in Hebrews 2, verses 5 through 9. For it was not to the angels, so again, there's this distinction among created beings. It was not to the angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we're speaking, It has been testified somewhere, here's Psalm 8, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. So who is him? Well, here verse nine tells us. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, 
crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So did you notice the significance here? In Psalm 8, David is speaking generally of humanity and says, you made him lower than the angels. But the writer of Hebrews here directs that a little more because what does he say if you look at Hebrews? He says, you made him who for a little while was made lower than the angels. Who is him who was made for a little while lower than the angels? The son of God, the eternally begotten second person of the Trinity who was fully God, who for a little while here on earth took on human flesh and all of its limitations. And why would he do this? We spend the whole of our lives wanting to get rid of limitations. And yet here Jesus subjected himself to yours. Why? Verses 10 through 18. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And so in terms of thinking of humanity as weaknesses, sanctified there, there's a sense of for he who is perfect and those who are being made perfect all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of your congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, so that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery." For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Why did Jesus take on flesh? to redeem it. Jesus entered our creational limitations to redeem our situational limitations of the brokenness of the world and the sin that caused everything to go wrong. This is why the incarnation of Jesus, Jesus being fully God and fully man, what we're seeing play out in the book of Luke is so important, not only to our understanding of God, but our understanding of yourself. One fourth century pastor said that that, nothing, What is not assumed in the incarnation is not redeemed or healed. That is to say, everything Jesus took on in the flesh is redeemed and healed. When Jesus took on flesh as fully God and fully man, redemption became possible. This is so important. This means that Jesus did not come to deliver us from humanity, but instead to deliver humanity. Jesus didn't come to save you from being human. He came to pave the way back to true humanity, to bring us back to what we were made for. 
So let's do some Bible study here if you have Hebrews 2 open in front of you. And what we want to do, let's look at this familial language. The author is doing something here and pay attention to this family language that he's using. First, he was bringing many sons to glory. Then he is not ashamed to call them brothers. Then he will tell of God's name to the brothers. Who are they? They are the children God gave him. The children share in flesh and blood and partook. he partook of the same things. He helps the offspring of Abraham being made like his brothers in every respect. Jesus became like you. In fact, there is not one aspect of your existence Jesus himself has not tasted. There is not one aspect of your trial or your suffering which Jesus himself did not assume so that those who have faith in him might be redeemed. The eternal son of God took on creational limits. The one who never slumbered, slept. The one who never hungered, needed food. The one who never thirsted, needed water. The eternal son who lived in a situation of perfect untouched glory in eternity walked in the situational limits of a broken world. He got runny noses. He got a cold. He stubbed his toe and struck his thumb with a hammer. He had friends die early. He knew grief. This alone is scandalous. We have kids in here and you parents, you know how you want to shield your kids from the pain of this broken world. Here is the eternal son of God who God did not spare that from. But Jesus willingly encountered the pain of this world for your sake. He knew it all and he knew it in full. But Jesus not only shared in our creational limits, he not only shared in the situation of brokenness in a fallen world, Jesus, and this is scandalous, and this is why we need to put on our theology hats, Jesus participated in the burden of our sin. And here's the greater scandal. Jesus encountered limitations. He needed food and sleep and water. He needed rest. He encountered the effects of sin in this world. He was tempted with the exact same temptation Adam and Eve were tempted, but even more because Jesus knew what it was like to be uncreated. He knew what it was like to be unlimited. Therefore, that desire to reach back into that well of self-sufficiency would have been so much stronger for the eternal son of God. He knew what life and life only should, should be, which made the pain of death sting all the more. And he experienced all of that, but never himself sinned. He never bought into the lie of idolatry. He never sought to reach beyond his limits, but lived perfectly in desperate reliance on God the Father through the Spirit. And look at what the author of Hebrews says. It should be on almost the same page, Hebrews 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. So here's the scandal. Jesus the unlimited took on creational limits. Jesus the one who lived in perfection 
took on situational imperfections in a broken world, but the scandal is, is that Jesus, even in the midst of that, who never sinned, who never earned condemnation or displeasure from the Father, that Jesus entered into your mess of sin, not by participating in sin, but by taking your punishment of the sin you did. He knows what those who hope in him will never know. He knows the cosmic judgment and displeasure of God because he came to take your sin. He came to take the greatest weight and cause of all of our situational displeasure. What Adam couldn't do, Jesus did harder. What Adam couldn't lift, Jesus lifted more. Look back at Hebrews 2, 14 through 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook in the, of the same things that through death he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not the angels he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore he is able to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become the merciful and faithful high priest in service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted." Jesus did all of this so that we might see what redemption is like. You see, without Jesus' humanity, humanity is lost forever. But because Jesus came, there is hope, hope even for humans, hope for weak people like you, hope for limited people like you, hope for depressed, anxious, and angry people just like you. Look back. What is the hope Jesus is restoring us to? Look at Jesus speaking to his brothers. What is he saying to his brothers in verses 11 through 13? Notice this. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them, that is humanity, brothers, saying, here's what Jesus is doing. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. What has Jesus come to do? To go to his brothers who have run away from the unlimited God and embraced the limitations of idols and to say, look back at the Father. I will declare his name to you. I will make known to you the God you feared by taking away the fear of sin, by taking the punishment your sins deserved. And most importantly, what is he doing for us? He is restoring our trust in God. He says, I the unlimited, eternal Son of God put my trust in him. How much more should we who are limited and who are sinful see the hope of salvation in renewed dependence on the uncreated, unlimited, and infinite God? We live in a world of natural wonders 
where billions of dollars are spent a year trying to preserve glaciers and clean up mangroves. But what does the creator God spend his consideration on from Psalm chapter eight? What does the creator God care for? Limited, weak, and broken sinners. And where do you see God's care for you? in your brother priest, Jesus Christ. When we encounter the limits of sleep and hunger, when there are new parents in here who are up at night with crying children, when we want to be all-powerful for the sake of ourselves, remember the all-powerful Jesus laid aside his infinite nature and proved his father perfectly trustworthy. In your limitations, trust your father. When we face the brokenness of pain, the limits of death, of cancer, of drought, of famine. There's one member family here today that is waiting for diagnosis and advice on a heart that isn't working. When those things happen, know Jesus lived here too. And that he proved God faithful and good and that his resurrection proved that one day the situational effects of brokenness will be gone forever. When we encounter the temptation to sin, the cry of unlimited glory from limited sources, know that Jesus too felt that draw, yet he found peace in obedience and reliance upon the Father. And he did so, so that all those who failed, all those who lived imperfect, all those who tasted the limits of the idols would have their punishment consumed by him on the cross. You see, Jesus has come to deliver us from our situational realities and restore our creational limits. He's taken away now. If you have faith in Jesus Christ, if you confess your sins, Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. The situation of your sin has been removed by the cross. But this is where this series comes in. Though the situation of sin has been solved on the cross, though it's being solved daily by the Holy Spirit working in you to conform you more and more into the image of Jesus, the situational realities of this world and of the brokenness of our bodies remain. So what do we do as people who live forgiven but not fully healed, sanctified but not perfected, redeemed but not fully rescued? The author of Hebrews speaks to you today speaks to me today. Hebrews 2, verses 8 and 9. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. We must understand he in whose image we were made and the perfect image bearer who redeems it if we want any hope for weak, broken, sinful living. So my question to you today is Do you see him?
you will never see yourself fully apart from that. You will never find rest in the midst of this world that though in subjection to Jesus has not fully been perfectly subjected. And so when we encounter hardships, we're gonna ask ourselves three questions. We're gonna say first, who is this and what am I? This is largely what we're going to discuss over the next three weeks. We're going to say, is this a creational limit that God has made? If it is, then we rejoice and we turn to God. And we say, his mercies are new every day. Give us this day our daily bread as we rely on him. Is this a situational brokenness that will one day be renewed? Are these aching knees and failing bodies? Then we wait patiently for that day, knowing that Jesus felt that same wear. And is this sin? And if this is sin, Jesus has come to save you from that consequence. And now, knowing all things, we repent and we run to him. We find the trueness of our humanity and the righteousness of Jesus, for he is able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we cannot understand ourselves apart from understanding you. So in a world which preaches identity on every corner, as the old hymn says, let us hide ourselves in you. Lord, we pray that maybe today what's exposed are places where we are not actually upset at what is sinful or even what is broken in us, but sometimes our hearts are so twisted that we are upset at the very thing you created us to be limited, finite people in dependence on an unlimited and infinite God. So Lord, fix our eyes on Jesus, who not only saves us, but who proves the trustworthiness of God even in less than ideal circumstances. Lord, I pray this hope transforms our worship and transforms our our lives. We pray this in your name, amen.